Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Chuck Hillig. Chuck, since you and I made a date to have this interview, your name has popped up a few times here and there. In fact, just yesterday you, you came up on uh, the what was it, this uh, website that Francis Lucille is often on, uh, Stillness Speaks. They had yes. some videos of you. So it seems you're getting to be relatively well-known, so I may very well be speaking to a very famous nobody here. I certainly hope so. <laughs> so the way we've been doing these shows, as yep. you may have noticed if you looked at one or two, is you know people find it interesting to you know hear a person's story, how they kind of arrived at where they're at. That sets up a little bit of a paradox for some people, because some people don't feel like there's really a person whose story is all that important. And yet right. it's, in, it's interesting to kind of see how one might have arrived at that realization or perspective. Some people like to take it chronologically, like, oh, I was a teenager and I took LSD and I realized there was more to life and then I moved along. And, you know, and others kind of like to jump right into you know, some watershed moment they had when they kind of had a profound realization that turned their, their life around. How would you like to do it? Well, I appreciate the fact that you kind of warned everybody saying, I know that it's not the story and we have to jump in someplace and pretend like there is a story and that there was some kind of like event that, that occurred in some kind of calendar date someplace in a linearity thing. I understand that, that that's not what happened and I want everybody who's watching this to understand that I don't believe any of that anyway. Right. All of that being said, here's my story. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was born and raised um, in the Catholic tradition. I was um, I went to Catholic grade school with the Sisters of St. Joseph, um, a Catholic high school with the Dominican priests, and a four-year Catholic uh, university with the Jesuits. I've been getting a lot of Catholics lately on this show. I, there's a lot, and I'm a recovering Catholic. I was probably in my senior year at the university when I was... When university I began, of, oh, the Catholic University. Okay, Catholic yes. University was right. in Cleveland, John Carroll University. Okay. And I began to have a growing disenchantment with my faith. And, and that's an interesting choice of words when I think about it, because, you know, when you're enchanted with something, you're kind of like bewitched by it. Mm -hmm. So I was like disenchanted by it. I, I realized or I began to question things that I had up until that point taken for granted, for, you know, for lack of a better phrase, God's own truth. And I was, I was very uncomfortable with this because this was not something that I had entertained or had looked for or tried to um, seek out in any way, shape, or form. I, was, I wanted to be a Catholic, and that's what I was, period, the end, case closed. But it was just too much of a cognitive dissonance or a spiritual dissonance between what was going on in my, in my heart of hearts and, and how I was recognizing myself walking through the world. So I was married at that time, I was getting married, I got married in the Catholic Church, and we had started having kids, as all good Catholics back in the 60s were wont to do, you know, no, no birth control, that's not, that's not what the Vatican wants. But I, I was becoming even more and more uncomfortable, and my, my wife, who I loved deeply at that time, was a really a major Catholic, she was a super Catholic, she would go to sleep with a rosary in one hand and a statue of Mary in the other, and yeah. so there was no wiggle room for anything else. <laughs> so I began to lead a double life. My yeah. double life was, I was, like, we had the kids, so on Sunday she would go out and, you know, go to church, and I'd watch the kids, she'd come back. I'd go out ostensibly to go to church, and what I would do is I'd just go to the park and get the New York Times, I was living in New York at the time, read the paper, I'd come back, she'd say, how was Mass? I'd say, fine. She said, what'd they talk about? I'd go, love. And that was it. That's <laughs> true. But then, around 1967, I was I was in the Navy for a while. I was uh, an officer in the Navy actually for three years. And then I got out, and we were living in Brooklyn. And I was working as a substitute, or you know, as kind of an interim thing, because I wanted to eventually go into my profession, which I had had a master's degree in theater arts from St. Louis University, another Jesuit university. Uh -huh. So I, I wanted to have this interim thing of about four or five months, and I was working as a caseworker for the Bureau of Child Welfare in New York City. Well, the woman who was sitting next to me said, you're kind of restless, you know, in your mind. I think you ought to read this book. And I went, no, nah, I don't want to read the book. And she said, no, you have to read this book. This book will change your life. And I was going, oh, anyway. 
three weeks later, I was in a bookstore, and I was walking down, you know, the kind of a labyrinth in there, and there's the book right there in front of me, eye level. And so I snatched it up, and I started to read it. And the name of the book is, everybody's wondering, Siddhartha. All right. By Herman Hesse. Wonderful. Classic. Yeah. Well, I started to read that, and it was like water and parched earth. I was just going, oh, where's this stuff been? I didn't hear about any of this stuff as a Catholic. And so after that book, I started to read everything I could on on Eastern philosophy, on Hinduism and Buddhism and, and Taoism and Zen, and my mind was exploding with ideas and possibilities and insights, and I started to write furiously about all this stuff that was just pouring out of me. And what did you guys think about all this? Well, <laughs> funny you should ask, and funny <laughs> I was about to mention this. She didn't like that at all. She yeah. wouldn't even read this stuff, and she thought that I'd kind of gone over to the dark side of the force, and I was kind of a cross between Satan and the Antichrist, because right. I was talking about maybe Eastern philosophies has something really here that's of value and something to look at and to pay attention to, mm-hmm. and she wasn't going for any of that. Right. Um, let's leap ahead a couple of years. I was going for a doctorate, and we had just moved, and she said, enough is enough is enough. I want a divorce. Hmm. That's went, not very Catholic, is it? Oh. I'm not very Catholic, but she said, oh, this is just not working for me, and so I took yeah. And literally, a knife, a fork, a spoon, a bowl, a plate, a glass, take a cup, my car, my books, and my clothes, and I headed west out to um, San Francisco, and I landed in Haight-Ashbury, and I lived in Haight-Ashbury for a while. In January of 1970, I was down there in Hollywood now, because I moved around, and I came down to Hollywood, and somebody turned me on to, uh, they said, oh, you have to read this book. It's one of these, you have to read these books kind of moment and the book was talks by or about Ramana Maharshi mm. so I read I, I went oh, this stuff just blows me away I just it just popped me inside out so I started to read everything that I could about Ramana Maharshi and I would go over to the Bodhi Tree bookstore if people are familiar with the Bodhi Tree bookstore and it's in Los Angeles West Hollywood mm-hmm. and I would I would just devour that stuff and it was like it was like, wow, such a com- coming home. After I went and saw and knew about and was experienced and opened through my connection with Maharshi, it was like, where else could I go after that? I mean, there was no place else for me to go. About two months before that, and I think this was the opening that you were pointing at, about two months before that, I was living out of my camper. I was in Idlewild, California, which is on the mountain, San Jacinto, which is right near Palm Springs, I was way up in the mountains, and it was in December, and I had been writing furiously. I was alone. We were divorced by that time. And I was reading the Upanishads, and I was reading the Bhagavad Gita, and I was reading Shankara's Crestule of Discrimination. I was reading uh, the Dhammapada. I was reading Alan Watts. Who were were big... you doing any kind of actual meditation, or were you just reading all this stuff? I was reading this stuff, and I... And I was going, this is absolutely mind-boggling. So I was, I remember very distinctly, I was up in this parking lot, and there was nobody else around, and I had my little camper, and it was uh, sometime in the afternoon, and I just decided I'd been riding here too much in, in the camper, so I'd get out and I'd take a walk. So I went out, started walking up the trail, mm-hmm. and here's the perennial, those words, you know, something happened. I don't know what happened, but by the time I got back, kind of staggered on back to the van, I had shifted. Something had shifted. I had had like an experience of some kind of quintessential oneness. Like I stopped. I stopped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I stopped being who I was, and everything else stopped being what it was, and there was like no sense of separation or difference between those two, mm-hmm. and it was staggering me. It just shook me to the core. When I got back to the uh, the van, I remember climbing on in there and sitting down there in the very same seat that I was sitting in, you know, a couple of hours before, and looking down there at the table, and this was the most fascinating thing. And there was coffee cups, and I was smoking at the time. There was an ashtray. There was all my papers scattered around. There were papers and pens and things. The whole table was just in a a state of dishevelment. And yet, and yet, I was absolutely just dumbstruck by how perfect it all was. Mm. Every single thing was exactly in place. There was not one pencil or scrap of paper or butt in the in the ashtray that was out of place. It was beyond perfect. It was beyond perfect. And I was going, 
it takes my breath away. So I tried deliberately to mess it up. <laughs> Natural <laughs> experiment. So I moved this pencil from over here, and this pen over there, and moved this stuff around. And no matter what I did, I was just going from one perfect place to another perfect place. And every movement, every space along there was equally perfect. I could not mess it up. I could not make it less perfect or anything other than just perfect. And I just sat there and just... It was it, it just my, my mind, which is always going up until that point, just stopped and said, how is, how is this possible? And I, I remember going out later on in that afternoon and, and seeing a bird fly from this tree to that tree and thinking, that's perfect. That's exactly what that bird needs to do right now. It's, it's so appropriate. Yeah. It's <laughs> funny. I had that same experience with birds. You know, oh, you did? <laughs> just, it seems like they're, they're you know, I, I saw some birds fly across the sky one time. They're just following the perfect exact course for, you know, yes. for those birds. Just, how did they know that? <laughs> and several days later when I finally came off the mountain, and I'd be talking to people, mm -hmm. and it was like, how did they know that they should be saying these things? And with the exact way, it's like everybody's so well rehearsed. Yeah, their lines and it's like everybody's got an invisible script around their uh, their neck that they're reading off of i was just beyond i was dumbstruck it was just nothing else that i could say and people would come up to me going wow man what kind of dope are you on you're <laughs> and i that i hadn't said a word but i must have had a yeah. glow about me or something uh -huh. but after a couple of weeks it, be, it began to fade but that was that was a, a real major shift in my in my experience when suddenly all that that just the perfection of everything just overwhelmed me, and I was washed away. Neat. It's interesting because sometimes teachers will present that kind of perspe perspective as almost like an instruction, you know, like Byron Katie loving what is and so on. Right, um, right. But, um, you know, what you experienced was the actual experience that they were pointing to. You know, you experienced the moon, not the finger pointing at the moon. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, but sometimes they mistake a descriptor of a state for the state itself, or for a means to that state. Uh, but you just kind of slipped into that state. And I did, and I think that what it helped was I was kind of getting primed for it. First, the separation from my wife and my disenchantment with Catholicism, and then the reading that I had, yeah. and then so this great opening. And all of a sudden, then, like I said, a month later, that's when somebody said, read Ramana Maharshi. So I'm sure that was perfect, too. It was absolutely perfect. <laughs> the great line out of Shakespeare's King Lear in Edmund, uh, the legitimate son of Gloucester, says, ripeness is all. Mm. Ripeness is all. When you're ready, boy, there's just no stopping it. It just, it just pops into it. But I could see progression, you know, now that I have some hindsight to it, I can see how it went from this, from being a college instructor all the way over to my hippie-dim days and then finally discovering uh, Maharshi. But it was, it was really a progression that I enjoyed only after it happened. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was like a great period of, of spiritual upheaval. Cool. Now, not to get ahead of the story, but maybe we'll touch on this later on, you know, the whole issue of whether methods to ripen oneself are, whether are, are legitimate or whether you appreciate or respect that. Because, you know, some teachers seem to say you don't need to do any of that, just sort of get there, see it, you know, and you're done. And there's that kind of camp as opposed to the camp that says, you know, do this, do this, do this, do this, and you'll, and you'll become more and more ripe, and you'll sort of facilitate an awakening when you're good and ready for it. But anyway, if you want, you can come on, on that now, but we can shelve that and, and have you continue with your story as well. That might be the way to go. After I, I had this awareness of Maharshi's existence and all the writings that he had, uh, I began to, again, get back into my reading because I'm a, I'm a great, voracious reader. I love to read all of these different books and stuff. And I, would, I remember walking up and down the um, the aisles there at the Bodhi Tree. Have you ever been to the Bodhi Tree, Rick? No, I haven't. I think Timothy mentioned it um, in Timothy Conway in our interviews a week or two ago, but I've heard about it you know, for decades. I just haven't spent that much time in Los Angeles. I think it's going out of business this year, though, unfortunately. Oh, that's but too bad. Yeah, we had a delightful little store here bad, in my yeah. town that went out of business. Just, it's hard to compete with Amazon these days. Yeah, I'm very <laughs> sad that they're doing that. Yeah. Anyway, so I remember walking up and down the aisles and thinking, well, this thing that I had, this thing that, ex that that showed up for me, how come people are not putting it in a real simple way? Yeah. So I come across these books that were five, six hundred words long with 
many appendices and footnotes and esoteric words. And I said, wait a minute, this should be really be able, you know, how come they, they can't distill this and crunch it down into a way that can be understood just as it is, right. as it is. Right. And so I said, well, maybe I should write that book. Yeah. <laughs> so what yeah. I did was I went home, I was living up in Ohio at the time, and I made a list, literally made a list of all of the words that I did not want to use in my book. I said, I'm not going to use consciousness or astral plane or a hierarchy or grace or any words that would possibly, when people would read them, would tangentially move them off in another direction because they, they would probably think, well, I know what he's talking about, when that would not be where I was trying to lead them to. Right. So I wanted to use very simple, almost monosyllabic words that everybody could agree, yep, that's what these mean. So I put the book together, and it was called Enlightenment for Beginners. I'm surprised you used the word enlightenment, but uh, I guess you had to use it somewhere, you know. Well, interestingly Cause, enough, cause that word that, is heavily laden. That's a very good catch. Actually, I didn't. Enlightenment for Beginners was the second title. I retitled it in 1999. Mm -hmm. The first title was, and you could probably still get it, you know, at dusty old used bookstores. It was called What Are You Doing in My Universe? That was the original title. So I crushed it together. I did it was like 2,000 words and gave it to the publisher. The publisher says, yes, but you need an introduction. So I wrote like a 1,500-word introduction to it. So the introduction is, is almost as long as the book itself. Mm -hmm. So then I sent it off to the publisher, and it was published by Newcastle Publishing. So that was the beginning of my writing career. I was working at the time. I was a state-licensed uh, psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. I had worked in that field for 30 years now. I retired a couple of years ago. But that was about the time that I'd started my, my professional career as a psychotherapist. Cool. I have uh, two other friends who are awake in the spiritual sense who are professional psychotherapists. And uh, it must be sort of a precious qualification for that profession. If I had to go to a psychotherapist, I would definitely want to go to one who kind of knew who they were <laughs> before they tried to help me figure out what I, what was going on with me. <laughs> when I was doing psychotherapy, a lot of people would say, well, how did you, how did you just, not justify, but how did you reconcile yeah. non-duality, you know, with doing very mundane, secular kinds of problems? And um, I said, well, I no problem with it. They're, they're dreaming all of this, and I'm going to involve myself in their dream, and give them dream solutions for this. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, most of the people that would come to me, Rick, were like in their 20s and 30s, and their problems were very mundane and secular. They were about relationships. They were about job-related stuff or problems with their children. They were depressed or anxious, things that spoke really of, you know, their humanness. Right. However, comma, but, as, as I had an older clientele in their 40s, late, mid, mid to late 40s or 50s or 60s, I would be approached by people as, as clients, and they would want to have a conversation about more spiritual things, things like, hey, you know, I've done all the stuff that everybody said would make me happy. I have all these futurements of wealth, this power, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm this CEO and this CFO. But I'm still really unhappy, and I feel empty inside, and I don't know why. You know, and it's it's kind of a, a what's it all about, Alfie kind of moment. Yeah. So at that point, when they put that on the table, that gave me an opening to to begin to say, well, maybe we can go down that path. Yeah, and yeah. Find out about who you think you are, <clears throat> and so with that opening, then I would suspect that maybe one out of ten would want to walk down that path. It's not a bad percentage. Not a bad percentage, but nine out of ten would be very mundane, secular things having to do with the game and the dance and the play. Yeah. So you kind of left us on the mountaintop there. You had this awakening experience in Idlewild. And, all right. And then you kind of faded after a couple of weeks, but you kept reading all these books and everything. So when it faded, did it really fade, or was it a matter of sort of integrating it into ordinary life so that the newness of it was no longer almost a distraction and you, you were just kind of living in that state more naturally? I found that it was very difficult to talk to people about that. Mm -hmm. When I did, they'd go, oh, you've been smoking too much dope, Chuck. <laughs> and I was smoking back then. Or, you know, taking some acid. I had dropped some acid way back in the 70s. But I said, no, that, that's not it. There's something else that happened here that was significant that I've shifted from. Mm -hmm. And I began to notice 
that whenever I'd be around friends or in bars and drinking and stuff, I'm very clever <laughs> uh, with, with conversations, and I can shape them in such a way that I kind of lead people down paths that begin to address these problems. Mm -hmm. I would ask them, you know, what do you think about what's really going on here and what, what, what happens after you die and who's underneath uh, you who you think you are? Right. Questions like that. You know, and people would give me some interesting answers after a few drinks, and, but I would notice that I was longing to have a conversation or a discussion or an involvement with other people at that level. And not being able to find it except in books. You wanted a sangha, basically. I did. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't. It didn't show up. It didn't show up. Then the universe interfered. Well, it didn't interfere. It just came along and said, well, we have a new plan for you, dude. You're going to be in charge of your children. Uh, so my wife had uh, turned them over to me. That's strange. She, well, she had had some issues, yeah. lack of a better term. And so she asked me to be the parent. So mm. I said, sure. I bought a house in Ohio and... The kids came out. There were two girls, just 10 and just 12. And mm -hmm. I began to be a parent and do parenting things. Mm -hmm. And all of that happened at the same time that I became licensed as a psychotherapist and the same time that I wrote the book, You Doing in My Universe. So it was a significant time, the mid-70s for me. So did you feel in the mid-70s at this stage, was there still a sense of seeking or did you feel like uh, kind of settled into that realization and content and, and seeing the kind of the unitive nature of things, uh, were you still kind of like looking into, you know, maybe I should go see this teacher, maybe I should do this practice or whatever? I wasn't so much into practicing. Mm -hmm. um, I was interested in, in seeing what the teachers were saying, but back then they didn't have a whole lot of teachers back then. I mean, not ones that, that were out there in the circuit. The teachers really came in in the 90s with Gangaji and right. all of the people that came in after Gangaji. Right. Papaji was over there in India, and I hadn't heard about him, gosh, until the 90s. And Nisargadatta, I did not hear about him either. So, you know, yeah. you hear people when you need to hear about them, but I sure didn't hear about them at that point. So I was, I was more interested still in just reading and in having conversations. I didn't really go to um, satsans and stuff until... Maybe the mid-90s or so, I began to huh. hear and sit in the presence of people who were purported to have something mm -hmm. and had some kind of a similar awakening or realization. So I just wanted to kind of measure what I had experienced, for lack of a better term, against what they had and see how that would compare. How did it? Well, I said, I could probably do this. Mm -hmm. I could probably get out there and do this and probably have more fun with it. Yeah. Because what I noticed, a whole lot of these people were very serious about it. And I was going, what's up with that? I'm having a good time with this. I'm laughing and joking and kidding and poking fun at myself and poking fun at the whole realization enlightenment trip. Mm -hmm. And these guys seem so serious about it. And I'm going, right. what's up? I don't understand that. I, I didn't get that. I didn't really, I couldn't resonate with that. And then I, you know, got to thinking, well, I'm sure Maharshi wasn't joking around like I am either. So then I began to tone it down a little bit. But I... <laughs> I had different different things that I was trying to do, and I I said no. That's I have to just be true to myself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody has their own personality. That's right, and, and my books are kind of fun too. You know, uh, not everybody's going to be a skinny little guy in a loincloth sitting in a cave. You know, we're all just going to have our own way of doing it. There um, you go. So during this period, uh, what I'm trying to get at did did yes. you did you kind of like you know look back on you know somewhat longingly on that cool experience you had had in the early 70s or did you feel that something had shifted and the shift was permanent and it was just sort of a continuum of whatever it wasn't just a flash in the pan it was a something had shifted and that shift may continued to this day looking back on that i thought something happened and i could never go back to the way that i was right it was like once you have the omelet <laughs> broken there you can't put the eggs back together you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube Something happened, and I could not go back to looking at the world and looking at myself, uh, the world in general, myself in particular, in the same way. Those days were over. Yeah. Now okay. I have to say, no, this is really something else that's going on here, and I need to explore it further. Maybe you didn't suffer from the I got it, I lost it syndrome. No, I, I said, no, I, I, I have it, and but I'm going to have different... Um, levels of experiencing on it, and I began to use, you know, analogies like, 
Well, when you're when you're sleeping, you know, you're not going to go down deep and, and stay at the same level and then come up eight hours later. You're going to have a sleep cycle, and sometimes you're going to be closer to awakening uh, than you are at others. Sometimes you're going to be in deep sleep, and it's going to go back and forth three or four times during the night. And so I figured, okay, sometimes I'm going to feel really very light and absolutely part of the quintessential oneness of the universe, mm -hmm. and yet other times... I said, well, I'm going to I'm going to feel really dark and I'm going to feel lost and like I don't know what's going on and stuff. But I felt comfortable with that. Yeah. So I didn't push that away. And when I was way up here, I didn't try to cling to this mm -hmm. because I figured if I was trying to cling to this up here, that would be taken away from me faster. And if I tried to push this stuff away, you would stay around longer. Yeah. I just let things come and go and come and go. And I began to adapt. Yes as my default position in life. Yes. So if this showed up, I said yes to it. If that showed up, I said yes to it. Mm -hmm. Everything was always yes. Loving what is. One friend of mine expressed it as, as a sort of like a, a spectrum, and he just finds his awareness sort of shifting to different points on the spectrum as is appropriate for the situation. And sometimes, you know, you might be very kind of zeroed in on some very specific individual human task and, and other times more kind of relaxed into the unboundedness and kind of more cosmic value. But even as you swing back and forth on that spectrum, you know, you're not utterly devoid of one end of it or the other at any given time. The whole spectrum is there, but just the focus shifts around according to necessity, according to the circumstance. That yes, that's a good way to describe it, very much so, yes. It's, yeah. it's almost like having a, a flashlight, you know, it depends on where you want to put the laser of your attention. Yeah, and then also tell me whether this would work for you. In light of what we just said, or in addition to what we just said, do you also feel that there's a sort of an ongoing evolution yet taking place, a deepening, a clarification, a maturation, some sort of ongoing evolutionary development? Yes, there is, and it's interesting how it, how it unfolds. I've noticed that it shows up in rather subtle ways. Sometimes I just hear like a hint of a, or like a phrase that somebody speaks. Could be on the news, it could be the radio, it could be somebody I'm just passing by in the street. But that is like an opening. It's like a little seed that's planted there, and suddenly there's like a whole new awareness that shows up there. And the more that I'm aware of that, the more that I'm open to to having those seeds the more that they show up but they're not talking it's so interesting 99.9 percent .9 of the time they're not talking about any of this stuff they're not talking about enlightenment or realization or awareness they're talking about really mundane down-to-earth solid kind of stuff that's what they're talking about but somehow when they say that to me it shifts me over into into those areas and just makes a significant impact on yeah. me. I wish I could come up with an example of it, well, but they happen on a regular basis. Perhaps it might even be something inanimate, like a bus horn or something like that, that just serves as a catalyst for some little shift. Anything like that, yeah, but it, it has nothing to do at all with you know this, this particular topic, this particular philosophy. Yeah. Nothing at all, but suddenly it just shows up and wow. There's a saying in the Vedas, which is something like, I don't know the Sanskrit of it, but the English of it is, the world reveals Brahman. I was just reminded of that by what, you, what yeah. you're saying, you yeah. know, as if the world becomes our guru and every little thing that happens is a catalyst or a stimulus to some greater degree of awakening. I think you're always meeting your guru and, and consciousness appears in front of you as everything that you're pretending that you're not, so that... It's all consciousness, and it's all the guru's teaching, whatever happens to, with, and for you. And actually, I don't think that anything happens to you. It all happens for you. Yeah. It's an education uplifting thing. It's benign, you know, and it's not something that, that is out to hurt you in any way, but here it is. This is the stuff that you need right now in this moment to realize it. So people would come up to me and they what has to happen? You know, how, how do I become more enlightened? And I go, it's right there in front of you. Whatever your path is, whatever you're doing or not doing, or thinking or not thinking or saying, or whatever that is, that's your path. That's what you need to do. That's that's where you're being led. That's what you need to unfold through. So go there. Yeah, that's true. And that kind of leads us back to that thing that we put on the shelf a few minutes ago, which is that very often the respected teachers of Advaita, like Ramana Maharshi and Nisargadatta and others, are presented 
as having just espoused this sort of absolute perspective. No self and the world is an illusion and so on and so forth. But if you actually, you know, as I'm sure you have, read these guys in some detail, and as Timothy was saying a couple weeks ago, he spent a lot of time with Nisargadatta uh, right. in, in person. He said, that, you know, they, I mean, Ramana Maharshi read the newspaper and was concerned with world events and so on and, and actually was quite enthusiastic about having his followers do practices such as meditation or selfless service or, you know, whatever was appropriate for them at their stage of development. And the Sargadatta too. I mean, he said he took Timothy by the shoulder. Timothy said he took him by the shoulders one time and and just kind of looked at him with great intensity and said, "You must meditate, meditate." <laughs> <laughs> you know, on the one hand, yes, you know, life is our teacher. But I don't ne think we necessarily have to say to the guy, oh, "Okay, just go back and work in your factory, and that'll get you enlightened. That's your teacher." You know, there are things what one can do to supplement and augment one's development to enrich and deepen one's experience. You know, specific practices. And the fact that ultimately the world may be an illusion doesn't that negate the value of these things. I mean, any more than it negates the value of eating a meal. You know, I mean, you could say, well, the world's illusion, an illusion, so why should I eat? You well, know, I understand. Things, I have, things have their value on their own levels, you know, that's what I'm trying to say. Well, only dream food can satisfy the, the dreaming dreamer. Right. But I understand what you're saying, and I, I agree with it. I have nothing against anybody who wants to do any of those practices at all. If if the spirit moves you, if you feel motivated, if, if there's a, a fire in your belly to go down a path of uh, doing, um, you know, sitting in a cave or meditating or chanting, I go, go for it. Yeah. 100%, 1,000%. But I encourage people who do that, though, not to be attached to that, not to think that, wow, this is going to take me someplace. Yeah. You know, because it's so easy to think of that as some kind of tool, some kind of strategy that if I do this and apply this, you know, I'm going to be given a golden star of enlightenment after 20 years or 30 years because, after all, look how hard I've worked for this. And now, how come I'm not enlightened? And I've seen people who have chanted for 40 years, and they're just not very happy at all. They still have a lot of messy things going on in their lives, and they don't have a sense of joy, an inner sense of joy that supersedes everything else in their life. No matter how crazy it is, they don't feel happy about it. Happy in their happiness and happy, happy in their unhappiness. They've gotten they, stuck in a rut. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I go, if chanting or meditating comes up for you, do it. And if it doesn't, it can't be forced. It shouldn't be forced. Yeah. It's just what I'm, shows I mean, up. for you, you read a lot of books. And yep. it could be argued that the books were illusory and the concepts and words in the books were illusory and so on. But, you know, it takes a thorn to remove a thorn. And um, as Shankara said, when the elephant chased him up the tree, the illusory elephant chased the illusory me up the illusory tree. So, you know, each in its own place, each thing yep. in its own place and to each his own also. As I don't know if there's any universal prescription, as you're saying. I'm just sort of emphasizing that a little bit because some spiritual teachers dismiss all that stuff as being bunk and worthless and waste of time and you don't need it. All you need to do is realize that there's no person and the world's an illusion and you're done. And I, th I don't think it's quite so you know, cut and dried necessarily and, and you know that might work for some. In fact, Ramana Maharshi himself used to sort of give that sort of ultimate teaching to people if he felt they were right for it, but if he if they weren't, then he would give a sort of a more preliminary teaching. He would say, okay, well, do self-inquiry. And if they weren't right for that, he'd say, okay, well, meditate. And if they weren't right for that, he'd say, okay, well, do do service. You know, So he sort of acknowledged the legitimacy of, of different strokes for different folks. You know. Yes, yeah, I certainly would concur with that. that. That certainly makes good sense to me. I have no problem with anybody doing anything, really. I mean, I've known people who wanted to reach... Uh, nirvana, you know, by having crazy sex every night for three weeks as a way of somehow connecting with the cosmos. I go, all right, do whatever moves yeah. you. Try it, and if that doesn't work, try something else. <laughs> but there's, but, you know, there comes a time when all those strategies and devices, I think, have to be set aside, and you and you address the ultimate primordial question, which is, well, who is this one who thinks that? They're unenlightened, and they have, and that if they do these things, they're going to be enlightened. They're going to have something going on. Right. So who's that one? Who's the one who says I'm chanting or I'm meditating or I'm fasting? And who's this I in that sentence? And to go there because uh, I think Maharshi also pointed out that sooner or later you're going to have to address that. Yeah. You, maybe you just have to you know do it over a period of decades and stuff. But sooner or later there comes a time when you'll have to find out who it is that wants this and who is. Who is it that believes that they are 
in some kind of spiritual bondage and that they need to wake up from that. Who is that? And also, I think there comes a time when you have to dispel the notion that enlightenment is something that you're going to get, that there's somebody who could get it, like you could get a new car or something, or learn a new skill or some such thing. You know, I've talked to people who, you know, been meditating and doing spiritual practices for decades who have an awakening, and even after all that experience and practice, they say that they were really quite surprised at how different it turned out to be than anything they had conceptualized. That's interesting, yes. Well, that's that's the one way of not getting it, and that's to try to you know, wrap your, your intellectual arms around it and figure it out, because this stuff is unfigureoutable. Yeah, good point. It's, it's sort of not that the intellect can contain it, or the mind can contain it, because it contains those, it's, those faculties yeah. and everything else. Yeah, the, in Zen philosophy, they, they say it's ungraspable, mm-hmm. ungraspable. Um, well, we want to grasp it, we want to contain it, we want to control it. We want to somehow have it. Well, now I've got my spiritual part, and I've got that going on over here. And we want content. We seem to have this thing about collecting content that, and especially I've talked to a lot of people, as I'm sure you have, who like go to different gurus, and they go to conferences, and they go to workshops and seminars and lectures, and they and they collect content. And then, as part of the ego trip, then they go, you know, to coffees and cocktail parties, and they talk about. The content that they got, well, this is what I learned from this guru, and this is what I got that conference and stuff. But it's content, and I tell people, I say, I'm not interested in giving you new content. That's not where I'm going with it. What I'm trying to do is to see if you're willing to shift the context of how you hold the content in your life. And they go, what's that? And I said, well, you know, if this water bottle is the context and the water inside is the content. You can take this water and pour it in another vessel, and it's the same content, but now it's held in a different context. So maybe if you shift how you're looking at things, the things that you're looking at will begin to change. Mm -hmm. But what would happen if you held your entire life in the ultimate context that says, it's a dream, this is all one, everything is consciousness? They go, well, I don't know. You know, let me think this out. (laughs) Let me add that to my content. (laughs) <laughs> I want to solve this. I want to res- Oh, and I go, well, good luck with that. Well, have you ever well, said that to anybody who has really gotten it in the way that you would hope they would? Not that I can recall, but I have had people come back to me who said, wow, you said something in our conversation, or I read this in one of your books, and it totally transformed my life. So, I mean, this would happen in doing therapy. And I've had people who came to me after 15 years or 20 years later. I don't remember them at all. They've changed. But they said, wow, there's one conversation that you and I have that when I walked out of that room, my life just changed and I walked off in a different direction. And I, I had a whole different experience of myself in the world. And I went, great. I didn't know that I was was an instrument of that. And yeah. I thank you for sharing that with me. And nice. I did. Yeah, it was really cool. The lighthouse may not know how many ships it's saving in the night. Ah, true enough. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, saving from what? What do they have to do? Yeah, you know, you know hitting, hitting those rocks. Hitting those rocks. I'm guilty of doing what you just said, but for me it, it works in a sense. And I'm always listening to stuff. You know, I, mean, I get up in the morning, slap my headphones on, start listening to something, grab my toothbrush. And, you uh, that, so I gave you that, that audio. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I just finished your audio this morning and some points in it that I want to bring up. But it's not like I'm craving information in the sense that I'm going to learn some new nugget from this person that's really going to put it all together for me. But I really appreciate hearing how different people express it. And it's sort of I see new angles of how to explain it or ways of explaining it more clearly and it sort of facilitates my own ability to kind of think through things clearly and explain them clearly and so on. And it really seems appropriate that there are so many different teachers teaching each in their own way because people resonate with certain expressions, you know, and some people, you know, really resonate with this one and some with that one. Right, right. So it's nice that there's so many people out there doing this these days. Oh, I'm very, very happy that there are, because like I said, way back in the 70s, I felt like a kind of a stranger in a strange land, even in the strangeness that California was. We <laughs> didn't have that. You know, we didn't seem to have that kind of, I didn't find them, that, that connection. Let's see, back in the, oh, let's see, in the mid-70s, well, that's when I started my career as a psychotherapist and just didn't find people out there that I could talk to about that stuff. 
What they did want to talk about, however, things like astrology, crystals, channeling, clairvoyance, mysticism. None of which really has anything to do with knowing who you are. Nothing at all. But I said, well, all right, it's better than, yeah. than talking about other things. At least they're kind of going in the, in the right direction, and maybe they just have to be in that area for a while. I learned TM myself back in 68, and so that was there. And, you know, they were barking up the right tree in terms of the idea of self-realization and, and so on. And, of course, there was Yogananda's movement before that. Right, um, right. And Vivekananda before that. You know, and that, that had its own organizational structure, which I, I'm sure didn't accommodate everyone comfortably. But, uh, you know, there was that sort of, that was my focus and, and, and emphasis uh, for many years. The only person that we had out there in Ojai that I'm not, I know you're familiar with was Krishnamurti. Right. Uh, Krishnamurti would come out, would visit Ojai about three months out of every year mm -hmm. until he finally died, I don't know, about 15, 18 years ago or so in Ojai. But he used to give talks, they would call them talks in the Oak Grove over in Miner's Oaks about half a mile from where I lived. Oh. So my kids would walk on over every uh, Saturday and Sunday and sit down there in the grove and, and listen to Krishnamurti talk. Cool. But he was very serious. This guy was extremely serious. I never saw him smile. I yeah. never saw him make a joke. He was very austere and intellectual and, and cerebral, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I only listened to him once in a, in a recording, and, and it's sort of like the, the way he came across was, you know, he, he seemed to regard his audience as a bunch of idiots who just weren't getting it, you know? He, <laughs> he was kind of abusive toward them, really. <laughs> he was, he was. <laughs> Although the woman I interviewed last week has listened to a lot of Krishnamurti talks, and she said she really, it really helped her tremendously. So again, you know, I mean, to each his own. And well, one of the coolest things that I heard him say once was he had been, you know, exasperated, like you had pointed out, for the people just weren't getting. And so he said, "I'm going to tell you." I'm paraphrasing this, of course. He says, "I'm going to tell you what the secret of it, what the real secret is." And the whole audience kind of leaned yeah, forward and <laughs> masked. We all wanted to get this, and he leaned down there, and he said, I don't mind anything. <laughs> That's very I, good, actually. That's very I know. Good. He yeah. said that was really cool, and I still remember it to this day. And that harkens back to your yes thing that you mentioned a while back. It's like you say yes to everything. Yes, yes is your default position. Yeah. You know, it's the no, it's the ego that says this should not be so. Something that sort of is akin to that in, in kind of the way I end up seeing things these days is the, the, the uncertainty principle, which is that I find it really hard to sort of take an adamant position on anything. And sometimes people try to get you to do that. Well, you, you must have a strong feeling about that. And yeah. it's, it's like, and I definitely have feelings and opinions about things, I mean, political attitudes and environmental opinions and all that kind of stuff. But it's hard to sort of get adamant about them because you can always see the broader perspective in which paradoxical opinions and perspectives also have their place and you know we're we're looking out through a certain peephole that works for us but other people have their peepholes and and it's, it's hard to just sort of be um absolutely rigid about the supremacy of one's own peephole <laughs> when they come from a place of certitude and yeah the adamant being adamant about a particular point of view i think to whatever extent they are rigid that rigid and intransigent it's the same extent and the same degree that they are really caught in being the dreaming dreamer. Very, very good point. And I think this ties into a point about humility, too, which I heard a very inter interesting definition of humility one time, which was that it's the quality of not insisting that things happen any particular way. Hmm. And, and if you think about that, I mean, you know, the opposite of humility would be a superimposition of one's ego on a situation, insisting that it be this way. In fact... This might be a good time to bring up your nursery rhyme that you used at the end of your book there. Row, 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 you uh -oh. go gently down the stream, merrily, 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 life is but a dream. I, yes. love, I love the way you ended up you know, using that and interpreting <laughs> that little song. I've been talking too much. Perhaps you could sort of reiterate that interpretation for the benefit of our listeners. I thought it was, it was really sweet. Well, yeah, at the end of Seeds for the Soul, I, I put together, I don't know, seven or 800 words about the ditty that we all know very well from our American heritage, Row, Row, Row Your Boat. And I thought, this interesting little song that we often sing in the round, like around a campfire, really contains the kernel and the real essence, the quintessence of what's going on and how to live life, and then kind of an overview saying, really, life is but a dream. You start off with, 
you know, some making some kind of effort. They're, you're rowing your boat. You're, you have to make some kind of effort. You're doing that. It says row it and row it and row it. And you're in a boat. You're in some kind of vehicle that's going someplace. And row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Yeah. So gently, not with force, not with trying to crunch it up into demanding that it has to unfold in a certain way. It's gently. And it's down the stream. You don't want it. You're not taking your boat upstream. You're allowing it just to flow downstream. And it's gentle. It's not something that's forced. And there's no kind of ego demand on it. And the way that you should do all of that, going down the stream, and this, this inevitability of going down the stream in a particular path, you do it merrily. And it says it four times, merrily, 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 to really emphasize it, that it should be done with joy and with a sense of celebration mm -hmm. and Wow, this is really a lot of fun. But then the last line really catches the whole thing because it says life is but a dream. It's out that there was no boat, there is no water, there is no journey, there is no one making this journey. Life is a dream, and it's all okay. It's just part of the play, but have fun with it and enjoy it for what it is. So I was struck with, and I think it was 18 words, in 18 words, someone was able to put the whole core of all of this stuff and sneak it into our culture yeah. <laughs> in such a way that we sing it all the time. And everybody in the, in the whole country over the age of five knows that little ditty. And so it snuck on in there. And let's see how that plays out. But that really, I think, is the core of it, the quintessence of, of what we're talking about and pointing at. I had never thought of the song that way, but it's brilliant when you think about it. It's yes, just, it is. cosmic little teaching. <laughs> just dropped in there, see? Yeah. Perhaps some really insightful person actually wrote it. I don't know who did. We'll have to look what it up on Wikipedia. Which brings me to another interesting point. You know, I think that if, if you really claim the responsibility of being the source of everything, mm -hmm. then you are really the source of all the teachers and of all their teachings. Mm -hmm. You are that. So when people say, wow, the Bhagavad Gita, you, know, you wrote the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, where do you think that came from? Uh, you wrote the Upanishads and Brahmana Maharshi and Christ and Buddha. You're the source of that. That's sourced within you. These people are not separate from you. They're not other entities, something other than you. They are dream characters that you have created and dropped into your story history mm -hmm. to remind you that you're really dreaming and that it's a good idea to, to wake up. Very true. And from that perspective, I was also manning the ovens in Auschwitz. And, and, uh, and throwing the babies in. Yep. And also basically creating the whole universe. Because you can't stop if you're going to take, from, take it from that perspective. You are the originator, the source, the ultimate foundation of all that. And you are. And from that perspective, there's only one of us in this particular universe. We're 13.7 billion years into, you know, creating this fascinating manifestation. It is. It's fascinating. People who are watching this on YouTube, I want you to know that Rick and I are not having a dialogue at all. This is not a dialogue. This is a monologue, but it's just coming out of different mouths. But there's only one thing here. There's only one person here. And that same person is, is listening to this. That's you know. right. And Rick and I are dream characters that you have made up and yeah. have brought to your life right now to remind you that you're really pretending and making it all up. One analogy I think helps to understand that is, is you know, the analogy of an ocean where it's really only one ocean, but there are all these different waves. And the waves appear to be discrete and unique and separate from one another, but they're really all made of the same water. Same and water. If the ocean kind of settles down, then the wave, sort of stretching the metaphor, the wave realizes, oh, I am just the ocean. I wasn't a wave, you know. And then maybe it rises up in waves again, and and the wave appreciates its its waveness. But perhaps having having had that settled down experience, it doesn't forget that it's the ocean while it's nonetheless behaving as a wave. Yes. Yeah. I love that. I love that analogy. That, that just seems to fit in. So I always look for really cool analogies like that and, and other ones that like the movie screen one that uh, Ramana Maharshi would talk about yeah. with the the seamless oneness of the of the movie screen. And yet what's being projected on it would be like the story of your life. And you think you're just this little character that's interacting on the screen when really the essence of it and the truth behind all that is that you are the screen because that's all that there is was and ever will be. Yeah, and personally, I really kind of like to always use, you know, say, on the other hand, and in, in, in having made a statement like this, you know, in the very next breath, reemphasize that 
one doesn't sort of glom onto this universal perspective as a as a sort of a dogma and intellectually devalue all the expressed aspects of life. I mean, if your daughter dies, you don't just say, eh, just an illusion, you know, no big deal. No, you know, no. you experience that as a human being. Because on, on one level, you are a human being. Not to do that would be to dishonor this and not to be an appreciative audience for your own melodrama and all the stuff that shows up on the human path that you are. You know, you're the personification of this human path, but you need to, to play it out. You need to enjoy it and revel in it. And that means crying the cry, you know, and weeping the, the weeping time and then moaning and groaning and doing all those things that flesh is wont to do from time to time. But to throw yourself into it and not to say, I'm much too cool or I'm much too enlightened to cry or to feel sad or to feel angry or to feel anything at all. Yeah. The idea is not to be free of those emotions, but maybe to be free from them. Mm -hmm. To I'm sort of be standing in a liberated place which, from which those emotions can be lived, but not become the all-consuming reality. They're a component of reality. You know, having their own sort of legitimacy on their own level, but there's another dimension which is also being appreciated, and which, like the movie screen, kind of is the background against which all this other stuff is playing. Yes, yeah, very well put. I agree. Somehow I'm reminded of that verse in the Gita. Krishna said, Creatures act according to their own nature. What can restraint accomplish? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we have our nature, and it plays out as it does. There's a cautionary note in here, I think, which is that I sense that some people are, are kind of taking all every, they take the kinds of points we're bringing up as an intellectual position and mistake that intellectual position for the actual realization. And it's almost like you take a nice picture of a dinner and think you can nourish yourself with that and think that you have what you need to nourish yourself just because you have the picture. Uh, yes. And yeah. I think that could be a danger on, on the path. And if you feel like, well, I know everything's an illusion. I'm done. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing more to gain here. There are no levels of awareness. There are no stages of enlightenment. Anybody who says there, there, there are is, you know, just trying to make money or something. I take exception with that when I hear it. I sort of feel like you, you always have to play this game of this reality is very, very true, but on the other hand, it doesn't negate. When I was talking to Tim Conway, he was telling me the Sanskrit terms for all this, but he, 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 yeah, sort of, he, knows yeah, he, he knows that stuff. But uh, he, you know, he was saying how this is actually the way Ramana taught. He, he didn't just sort of teach a one-sided perspective on the whole thing. He gave equal credence to the whole manifest life. Christ said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, just sort of giving proper uh, treatment of whatever level one was living and not just taking an intellectual position with things. I think that that's um, oftentimes used as a very as a defense mechanism against saying, "Well, I, I've gotten this so far, and I'm just going to stop there because if I progress further, um, I'm likely to put my ego into into hmm. jeopardy here, and I don't want to go that far. I want to go into the abyss, into the void. Uh, but I'll just stay right here and intellectualize it and say everything's an illusion and it's a dream, and who cares about?" It. But it, it's a way of dishonoring, and, and I can't think of a better, more appropriate word other than dishonoring and disrespecting the great drama of life and the great humanness of all of this. Hmm. I, I think instead of compartmentalizing it and saying, well, this is, this is the, the only part that I want to hang on to, and the rest of it is, is marginalized, hmm. I think it's doing it a great disservice, and I think that you're not dancing the dance. I think you need, I mean, you know, look at Shiva. Shiva gets in there and dances the dance. And we need to dance the dance because this is the this is what we've thrust ourselves into. And we need to go ahead and do it. Not to do it is a dishonoring. And yeah. I, I don't want to dishonor it. I want to have fun with it. I want, because, you know, at some level, it's having fun with me. <laughs> I don't think I ever thought of it that way, that as an ego protection mechanism. That's an interesting way of looking at it. In a way, it's also... I don't mean to be uh, too critical, but it, you could also think of it as a cop-out because if you sort of reach the conclusion that you're done, then it kind of lets you off the hook. I mean, what more is, yeah. there, what more is there to do? I can just chill now, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and I, I have the credentials, and you know, now that I have had that realization, but people, then they trot that out. They talk about that. They say, I've got that. But that becomes very much of a, you know, stoking the, the fires of ego and spirituality and going, oh, yes, I, I know a little bit more than you do, and I'm... But it's a spiritual one-upsmanship. 
Yeah. Did you ever read Tim's uh, Neo Advaita page on his uh, on his uh, EnlightenedSpirituality.org website? If you, no, if you, I have. If you do, do a that. search for Neo Advaita in Google, he, that page comes up number one. And you, right. you read that page. I printed it out. It was like 44 pages. But he, he brought out some of the very same points you just mentioned. Oh, really? The, oh. This spiritual one-upmanship thing, for one thing. Like, you know, people who, you know, you ask them to pass the salt, and they say, who, who is asking to pass the yes, salt? Yes, right. what <laughs> <laughs> I did. Slap us on the head. But it's like playing the, the non-dual trump card, you know. They're having a conversation, you're having a dialogue, an inquiry, and suddenly says, ah, yes, but who is asking? <laughs> who wants to know this? And it's like, it kills all the conversation. It's it's a big blockage, and people go, oh, he played the trump card. What do we, what can we do? <laughs> but it, it's fun, and it's funny how, how people do that. But it's, yeah, what are you going to do? That's how they are. And the stream, you know, to get back to our nursery rhyme, uh, yes. the stream is flowing, and you can row as you might this way and that, but you can't ultimately evade the current. Nope. You know? And I heard someone say the other day, I forget who said it, I think it might have been somebody named Reggie Ray. I was listening to Mariana Kaplan give a talk, and, and she was saying that this fellow made the point that sometimes we speak about people who are on a spiritual path. Yeah. He, he, he said everybody's on a spiritual path, you know, all seven billion of us. And it, it just takes all these different forms. But everybody is where, where they need to be in, in terms of what they need to experience. I, I, I'm elaborating now. I don't know what else he said about all this. But we're all kind of progressing from wherever we are. And you can't ultimately get stuck forever any place because that stream just keeps flowing. Keeps on a flowing. And, uh, <laughs> Old Man River. You'll get it when you get it. One of the things that I remember that Maharshi talked about once, and I can't, I, I wrote this down a long time ago, and I can't remember where I, what book it was in, but he was talking about different levels, and he said there are some aspirins who are like, let's see, oh, like gunpowder, mm -hmm. that all you have to do is put the match there and, and they get it. You know, oh, suddenly it's a great explosion and they get it. He says other aspirins are like charcoal. The flame has to be applied for a considerable period of time before it finally catches on and there's a glow finally. But it takes, there's a period of time that goes on to it. The third, he said, is like wet wood with the flame there and it just takes a long time to dry out the wood and finally heat it up to a place where it would catch fire. Yeah, that's a good metaphor. Amma said a similar thing. Well, I'm, I'm reminded of the log analogy. Amma, the hugging saint. Uh, yes, right. You know, she, someone asked her, what's the value of coming and seeing somebody like you? And she said, well, you know, if a log that's not burning very brightly kind of comes into proximity with, with one which is, then this log gets this one burning more brightly, you know? Right. So, <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's an interesting point to bring up because some people would say, uh, you know, because essentially we're all the same, uh, that means nobody is any different than anybody else. And therefore, why go see somebody like that? Why would you even go see Ramana Maharshi? Because he's just, he's the same person I am. But obviously his manifestation or expression of, of that had a way of uh, igniting logs, <laughs> including wet wood. It's a simple fact that, you know, some people have that ability or that influence perhaps more than others. So it's legitimate to associate with teachers if that's what you feel inspired to do. It, it can have a profound effect. Within the context of the dream, we have, we have teachers. Yeah. And we have designated some of these teachers to have great power, great awakening abilities. And mm -hmm. so we've cast them in that role. Well, let them play out their role. Let yeah. us play out their role and sit down there at their feet and, and listen to these cast of characters that we <laughs> that put together. Yeah, it could be very potent. Yes. So how are we doing? We've been going about an hour now. Um, do you feel like there's something that you know we haven't been touching upon that you would like to? I haven't been thinking to ask you certain questions or anything like that. Well, I can talk a little bit about the movie that I'm in, the DVD that I just came out. Oh, cool. Yeah, let's hear about that. It's called Leap 3.0. There's a Leap 2.0, but and they asked me to be in that one, but I was traveling at that time, so I missed the, the screening. But I'm in Leap 3.0, and there's people in it like Dan Millman and uh -huh. Fred Allen Wolf and Joe Vitale, some of the people that were in What the Bleep Do We Know and uh, The Secret. 
And so we filmed this about a year ago, and now it's just coming out. And if people want a copy of this DVD, they can get it on my website. And my website is just chuckhillig.com. Right, and I'll also be linking to that from my website when I okay, put, put up yeah, this interview. I just updated it, so yeah. I, anybody that wants to get any of my books or any of my DVDs or the audio tapes or CDs and stuff can just get all that stuff from my website. Mm -hmm. And what is this Leap 3.0 all about? Well, it's like talking heads kind of thing. They're, they're talking about um, non-duality. They're talking about the nature of reality and how we see it. Some of them, like Stuart Hameroff, is a famous or pretty well-known quantum physics kind of scientist. So they're trying to put crunch all this stuff together and, and show that reality is not as solid as we think it is, mm -hmm. and that maybe there's something beyond that, that that we need to pay attention to. So it's yeah, it's a very interesting movie. Interesting. Is John Hagelin in any of those uh, leap things? The name doesn't ring a bell. Physicist. He may. He may. Just curious. Great. And so, what do you do with yourself? You're retired from psychotherapy. I, I, I understand you speak at some conferences here or there. I mean, do you keep yourself pretty busy with this enlightenment stuff? this non-dual stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Take my little non-dual dog and pony show on the road here and see. Yeah. <laughs> you write yeah. books, so that must take up some of your time, and you go speak at some conferences here and there. Is that about it, or what? I, well, I like speaking, yes. I take long walks in the woods because I live in a, in a wooded area about 60 miles southwest of Washington, D.C. It's mm -hmm. near Fredericksburg, and it's like a hotbed of Civil War battlefields and stuff. So I like to walk through the battlefields and mm. kind of be alone, have my alone time. I live near a lake. I've got a, uh, an 18-foot pontoon boat I take out on the lake and have a good old time on that. Um, I don't do any writing right now, but I'm, I'm kind of leaning in that direction. I think that another book is going to be coming out sometime early next year. Um, at least I'm going to be starting to write it. Most of what, uh, what, what inspires me now is to actually do face-to-face -face contact with people. I like to give speeches. I like to give presentations. So if anybody who's seen this has an opportunity for me to do that, I'd be happy to do that. You can contact me through my website. Mm -hmm. I've got all kinds of different presentations I can give and, and would be very happy to come and visit you. Yeah. Do you ever do little satsangs, you know, over the web or anything like that? I haven't done so, but I would certainly consider that as a possibility, but um, nothing's ever shown up for me yeah. to do that. Some teachers do that these days, both audio yes, and video even. There's some people yeah. who've got it set up and they have, you know, you can tune in and watch them on through some technology, whatever. Yeah. Great. Well, I think that's a good stopping place, unless you feel like there's something uh, that you're going to think of after we hang up that you wish we had <laughs> talked about. Probably, but I can't think of anything. Yeah. You're a very interviewer, though. See, I've, I've had interviews before from other people, but not to you know be unduly gushy about it, but I thought you were very competent and, and asked some excellent questions and were interactive, so I really appreciate the fact that we were able to dialogue like that. Thanks. Sometimes I feel like I talk too much, you know, and as Larry King put it, if I'm talking, I'm not learning, but I don't know, that's not always the case either, because sometimes you you learn as you say something, you know, the, the idea gets more clear in your mind as you try to express it. Very true. Sometimes I start to talk, and I don't know where this stuff comes from, and I'm going, hey, that's pretty good shit. You know, whatever I'm talking about, it somehow it seems to make really good sense. That's so an I interesting just... point, actually. I, <laughs> I used to, as I mentioned, I was into transcendental meditation. I, I, I was once teaching a teacher training course of people learning to become teachers, and uh, people would ask questions, and I wouldn't really know the answer, but I'd have a sort of a seed thought, and I'd just start with that seed thought, and then the whole answer would kind of yes. unfold. And I, I asked Maharishi about that, um, you know, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and he and oh. and he said, I said, is that okay? And he said, yeah, that's the way I do it most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's how it works for me too. I just open my mouth and I start jumping in, and and all of a sudden I'm going, where is this stuff coming from? I'm channeling something, or I'm an instrument, or whatever kind of analogy you would want to use. But I, it's not something that I'm thinking about. So I'm not really the thinker of these thoughts, but these thoughts just show up and I speak them out through my mouth. Yeah, good. Well, as long as it's through your mouth, we wouldn't want to have it be through any other orifice. I don't. Oh, think. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Chuck. This has been a lot of fun. So it has um, been fun. Yeah, I do appreciate the, having the opportunity to hang out with you for an hour and whatever it is. Yeah. And uh, you know, we'll keep in touch and see how things go. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Rick Archer, and I've been speaking with Chuck Hillig 
on Buddha at the Gas Pump. If you happen to be listening to this uh, without actually connecting with the website, maybe somebody sent you an audio of it or something, there's a website, batgap.com, which is an acronym for Buddha at the Gas Pump, B-A-T-G-A-P. And you can go there, and I think Chuck is interview number 28 or something like that. And so there's a bunch of other ones there, and I, I do new ones every week. Um, there's also a podcast if you'd like to listen to this kind of stuff in your car while on the way to work or something. And uh, there is a YouTube channel, which I put up some of the interviews on. Um, I'll put them all up eventually, but some, I always get the audios ready before the videos, and the, there's been a backlog with the videos. But in any case, they'll all be here eventually, and new ones keep coming. And if anyone watching or listening to this has a suggestion for someone else that they think I should interview, let me know. In fact, that's, I think, how I found out about you, Chuck. Your, your publisher, Connie Shaw, that's right. Connie yes, Shaw that's... said, hey, you should interview this guy. And I said, okay. <laughs> I'm glad that she did, and I'm glad that you did. Yeah, good. Well, thanks. I, I really appreciate it. Enjoy, and we'll be in touch. All right, buddy. Thanks again. Bye-bye.